All right. Good morning, everybody. It's always so good to be with you. Like Pastor Steve said, a special welcome to those of you who are with us for the first time. We would hate for you to leave without connecting with us in some way. So if you want to hit that QR code on the back of the seat or make sure you stop by the tent uh, in the lot on your way out, we would appreciate it. Uh, I have a couple of really cool things to uh, update you on. You know, last uh, year we rolled out the future vision of the church. Three words we use to describe it, bigger, smaller, deeper. And it's all about increasing our reach for the kingdom of God, making an impact not only here within our walls, but as we like to say, beyond our walls, into the community, as you heard Steve say, out even into the world. So part of that vision was to make this building our permanent church home, which by the grace of God, we were able to do. We were able to purchase it. A few months ago, because of your generosity, and once again, by the grace of God, we were able to pay down a million dollars worth of debt on this building. Well, I'm super stoked to be able to tell you that, hang on, hang on, it gets better, all right? That was a few months ago, okay? I'm excited to tell you that again, because of your generosity, we are, on the, we are in the position of paying down another million dollars on the debt for this building. Yes, thank you. And in addition to that, I wanna let you know that in a couple of weeks, we will have renderings of what the remodel will look like. So part of the bigger, smaller, deeper vision was expanding our footprint here in this location through this remodel. God, by his grace, has been adding to our numbers quite significantly. I uh, don't know if you're aware, but uh, we were about 25 to 30% more people attended our Easter service than the year before. So God is doing some really cool things here. It's super fun to be a part of, but your generosity is making that possible. So I just wanna say thank you on behalf of all of the people, the many, many people who, and the people that are engaging with us online. We have an online audience that goes way out there uh, as well through the pandemic. Don't know if you're aware of this, but even uh, uh, the, what's been being absorbed through our live stream and through our YouTube channel, we went from a, a couple thousand subscriptions to almost 8,000 now. So this is all God's doing, right? Because we're not that good, <laughs> you know? We're just not, right? And so, we're super thankful for all of this. So, hey, if, if this is new to you, you're like, I've never heard of Bigger, Smaller, Deeper before, stay tuned because we've got some stuff that's aimed specifically for you to help you understand more of where God is leading us into the future and how you can be a part of it. So, with that being said, we're going to jump right into it. We're in Genesis chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles, you can head there. We've been looking at the life of this man, Abram. He is an ordinary guy, made extraordinary simply because he chose to place his life in God's hands. And the guy is super relatable because as we've seen, his journey of faith, it's like two steps forward and then one step back. And there are moments when he experiences doubt, even distrust, as he's walking with God through life. And what's really cool about our text this morning is we see God acknowledging this doubt. We see God speaking directly to 
his doubts. If you're here this morning, if you're listening online, and you've had those moments yourself, which we all have had, the text is going to speak so loudly, so loudly to you. So here's what we know. On this journey of faith, Abram calls, is called by God essentially kind of uh, from out of nowhere, which tells you that there was nothing that God foresaw in this individual when God called him. It's not like God looked down and said, oh, this guy's really good. I'm going to choose him. That's how it never works like that with God. God just sovereignly acts, and he says, I'm going to choose what is relatively obscure to do something great. Along the way, he has his doubts. God speaks directly to them. We're going to see that jumping right in chapter 15, verse 1. It says, after these things, well, that's the events of chapter 14. We'll review that in a second. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and God speaks. He says this, fear not, Abram. Don't be afraid. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. So, all throughout the Bible, God speaks to people in different ways. Here, God speaks in and through a vision. And notice carefully what God speaks to. He speaks directly to Abram's anxiety. We have a lot of anxiety in our world today. A whole lot of anxiety. And God says, do not fear. Now, maybe you've heard me say before, interestingly and importantly, this is the most often repeated command in the entire Bible. Do you realize that? That might surprise you because you might think, well, if you were to ask the average person, what's the most often repeated command in the Bible? Like, what would God want commanded, right? What would he, what would he, uh, what would he want to reiterate, right? Because repetition is the mother of learning. So what, what is it that God would want to say over and over again? Maybe love one another or serve one another or care about one another. Not even close. What God repeats over and over again is do not fear, which is the perfect thing to say. Because humans are fearful creatures. Now, there are some of us who love to live on the edge, right? We, we like to maybe uh, participate in some extreme adventure, right? To, so that we can feel life, the adrenaline rush. But there are common fears to us all, every person in the room. You see, you and I have a fear of loneliness. You and I have a fear of rejection. You and I have a fear of being unloved. These are common, common fears to us all. Now, there is a healthy kind of fear that is, is given by God for self-preservation. If you're walking down a dark street and someone approaches you aggressively, there's a healthy fear, again, that is God-given, that meant to protect you from harm. That's not the kind of fear God is talking about here. He's talking about the kind of fear that causes you to distrust him or to doubt him. And whenever we doubt God, whenever we fail to take God at his word, watch this, we are acting irrational. Let me say it again. Whenever we fail to take God at his word, we're actually acting irrational. Obeying God is the most sensible thing you can do. And here's why. God is the author, creator, and sustainer of all life. Therefore, he knows how life is to be lived best. 
That's why what you have in your hands and God's goodness is the blueprints for living a successful life. And when we avoid those blueprints, we end up building our own based on our own blueprint, and it's bound to crumble. In other words, we become undone. So th- this is a, these are great words for, uh, for Abram, and, and more so than you realize, because God is actually speaking directly to Abram's personal experience. In other words, he knows what's going on in Abram's life. Don't you doubt for a second that God doesn't know what's happening with you. He knows exactly what's happening in your life. See, God says two things, two things, Abram. Number one, don't fear. Secondly, I'm going to be your shield and your reward. Those are two really important things. Now, the text says, verse one, after these things. So what happens in chapter 14 is that Abram leads an army of basically 318 of the baddest dudes on the planet, just 318, 318 soldiers, wage war against the coalition of kings. And with God's help, Abram and his men win the battle. What happens when you win a battle? You're constantly looking over your shoulder. Retribution, revenge. That's why God says, I got you. I know exactly what's going on in your life. And here's what you need to hear from me. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to take the arrows. I'm going to stand in the gap. I got your back. You're with me. God is speaking directly to Abram's experience. Don't you for a second think that God doesn't know what's happening in your life and what you need. Secondly, he says, your reward will be very great. You know why he says that? Because what Abram does is really cool. After he wins this victory, to the victor goes the what? Spoil. And yet you see Abram saying, no, I don't want the wealth. I don't want the riches, I don't want the spoil. Because I don't want anybody thinking that I waged war in order to make myself wealthy. What I want people to know is that I wanted to do the right thing and rescue my relatives, and God fought this battle, and he's the one who gets the credit. I don't want to take anything. And so what does God say? I see you. I noticed. So you turn down the reward, doing what was right. So now I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna give you a reward. And when God gives you a reward, God says it's gonna be very great. You see what's happening here? This is great. Because God is speaking directly to Abram's circumstances. Now, sometimes God speaks to our circumstances and we're like, hey, that's great, God, but I have this other thing going on in my life. Can you speak to that? And that's exactly what you see happening next. This is really, really interesting. Because you see, previously God had made a promise to Abram saying, I'm gonna give you a son. Back in the day, kids were everything. And here's the crazy, here's the, we'll talk more about this in, next week. But you know what the name Abram means? It means exalted father. He has no kids. That's kind of embarrassing, right? Hey, what's your name? My name is Exalted Father. Well, that's awesome. I can't wait to meet your kids. Tell me about them. I don't have any. You might want to think about changing your name. <laughs> In fact, what's interesting, God does change his name to Abraham. You know what that means? Father of a multitude. See, God has a way of doing something in your life, giving you a new name that has something to do with your destiny, with what God wants to do in your life. 
you, you got to re- realize that's how God operates because if you get stuck in the now, you're never going to see the destiny that God has for you. So this is really cool language. So here's what Abraham's, Abram's struggle is, um, verse 2. But, but, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Uh, certainly, Abram appreciated what God had said, the reward and the shield. But you know, what good is any of that? What good is a reward if I don't have anybody to pass it on to? I don't have any, I don't have any kids. And God, previously you, you, you told me that I was going to have kids. But, but you know, it's been a while. And more than reward more than shield, what I really want is a son. The son that you promised I would have, but so far you haven't delivered. And the closest thing I have is Eleazar of Damascus. So some people believe that this guy is a servant of Abram, a close friend whom Abram has taken into his own household and treated like a family member and it was common practice back in the day that if a couple was childless then they would take a choice servant and make that servant uh, the heir. Others say no it's significant that this Eleazar is, is of Damascus because what we know is that the ancient city of Damascus was actually a hub or an epicenter for bank, banking and commerce and so Eleazar simply might, might be this guy who deals with inheritances and trusts. And so it could be that Abram is simply saying, well, you know, it's, it's kind of like my CPA is going to have access to my finances because I don't have a son. Either way, that's the point. I don't have a son. And, uh, and that's what I want, God. And that's what I don't have. But you said that I would. Uh, I, I, I really like this because what you see Abram doing is speaking openly and honestly to God uh, about what he feels like he needs and is not being given. And I think this is a great example for you and I. Instead of holding in his frustration and his questions, he brings them before God with an honest heart. I think so often we have a sense that we wanna hide things from God. It might be our fears, our frustrations, Maybe we fear being judged um, or found wanting. Uh, and, and yet, if you read the Bible carefully, especially in the Psalms, you see all these, these people really wrestling with God. I mean, these, these conversations are super raw. And people are really vulnerable with what they share. And there's all this emotion that pours out. For example, in Psalm 44, we don't know all the details, but the nation of Israel has fallen on some really hard times. And the psalmist writes about it. And you see hope and despair. You see anger. You see frustration. You see discouragement. You see disappointment. In fact, Psalm 44, verse 23, this is what he writes to God. He literally says to God, wake up. <laughs> Awake. Hey God, why are you sleeping? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. How long is this going to last, God? It's been a long time. Why do you hide your face? 
Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Raw. See, you can be brutally honest with God and still trust him with your future. Let me say it again. You can be really honest with God, and I think that's very healthy, and still trust God with your future. Notice how God speaks directly to Abraham about this in verse four. He says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. God says, this man, Eliezer, he's not the one. He will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In other words, one from your own body, Abram. And then God takes him outside and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So God reminds him of the promise. He says, I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten. I'll reiterate it to you. I'll give you a detail. It's not going to be Eleazar, but here's the detail. It's going to be from your own body. Now, let's, let's take a walk outside. Go ahead and look up at the night sky. You see all those stars? There's thousands of them. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, that's big. A lot, of, a lot of details here for Abram. Now, you know what's really interesting and, and, um, and hard It'll be 15 years before a son is born. Ouch. 15 years. If there's one thing we've learned through our studies so far, God's timing is not like ours because we are impatient creatures. We are fearful and we are impatient. And God's timing is not like ours. It's been said that the, the gears of God grind exceedingly slow but they also grind exceedingly fine. Meaning that everything God says, every little thing God says will come to pass in his timing. So why is it like this? Well, because there's this simple principle that God has baked into the reality of human life. I've been saying all along that obedience, obedience, obedience builds your faith. We need to add something to that now, patience. Obedience and patience will build your faith. We're gonna see more of that in the life of Abram. So how, how is Abram gonna to respond to God's words? Well, we know how, verse six. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now this is a very important statement because it reveals how any sinful human can be considered righteous before a God that is perfectly holy, and by holy we mean pure. How can a perfectly pure, holy, sinless God declare a sinful man righteous? How does that happen? The text tells us through belief. Now, consider what happened in chapter 14. Lot rescues his family. It's a super noble task, a lot of risk involved. God never says, because you did this noble act, I declare you righteous. doesn't say that. What does it say? He believed. And then it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, it's always been faith in God that makes a man or a woman acceptable to God. This is the key idea fundamental in Christianity. In fact, it's so important that the Old Testament actually references this verse, this Old Testament verse, four times. Paul uh, talks about it, includes it in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Now, what I'm about to read was written 2,000 years before, okay? 
uh, 2,000 years after Abram, the, the Apostle Paul says this. Basically, all those who trust, have the same faith of, of Abram, are in God's family. Verse 6. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he's reaching back in the Old Testament, and his Jewish readers would be familiar, very familiar with the story. Then he says, verse 7, understand then, those who have faith, now watch how many times faith is mentioned. Faith are children of Abraham. If you have faith in God as Abraham did, Abraham and Abram are the same guys, then you're in the family of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, the Gentiles are non-Jews, right, by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. So this is cool because basically what he's saying is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ was actually given to Abraham all those years ago because what's the heartbeat of the gospel? Faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's nothing new because it's always been about faith. All nations will be blessed through you. We know that to be the blessing of Jesus who comes on the scene in his death, burial, and resurrection is a blessing to all who believe, every family on earth. That's why Matthew begins his account of the life of Jesus by saying that Jesus is in the lineage from the line of Abraham. Verse nine, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So this is really significant and it speaks volumes to the culture in which we live because it's still very common to believe today, especially in America, that uh, if, uh, if you live your life and you are a good person, that is to say, your good outweighs your bad, then God will throw open the gates of heaven to you. Very common belief today, right? Uh, well, the Bible speaks directly to this. In fact, the very next verse, Paul addresses it because the same kind of thinking was common in his day. So verse 10, he says, for all who rely on the works of the law, you say, what's the works of the law? Think of the works of the law as a list of do's and don'ts, okay? If you do the do's and don't the don'ts, right? That's the works of the law, right? All who rely on the works of the law, they're actually under a curse as it is written. And he's gonna quote the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Hmm. So much for your good outweighing your bad. And we like to think this way because we all look at somebody who is worse than we are. And thank God for Hitler. <laughs> because compared to him, we're all in. So I may have done a few, few things that are jacked up for sure, but at least I'm no Hitler. As it turns out, God does not grade on a curve. <laughs> because here's how it goes. If you think you can do the do's and don't the don'ts, that's a curse upon you. You know why? Because it's impossible for you to keep every single one of them. In fact, the New Testament tells us that the law was actually a guide or a tutor until Christ. And another one of its purposes is that it tells us that we're sinners and that we can't do all the do's and all the don'ts. And therefore, we need someone to take the test for us. And that's what Jesus does. And he gets a perfect score. So you know, think, think of it this way. There's two forms of righteousness in the world. There's a righteousness that comes 
when I think I can earn my way to God. And you know, you know what that, you know essentially what that leads to? Self-righteousness. The Bible actually speaks to that. We'll talk about that in a second. The other way is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. There's only two kinds of, two kinds of justification, if you will, to be declared right by God. You get a perfect score every time on the test, which you can't do, or you let Jesus take the test for you and you put your faith and trust in him. That's what Paul, Paul is saying. And then he adds this, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So this speaks directly to this idea of self-righteousness. So think about it, and this is really smart of God, because if God were to establish salvation by works, then guess what? We would all run around trying to one-up each other, and we would all have bragging rights. How many good works did you do? You did two this week, I did 10. I am so much more in heaven than you. Oh, I am so much more saved than you. You've got some work to do. Not as a result of works, why? So that no one may boast. How gnarly would that be if salvation came by works? Because we would all be running around, we'd be driving ourselves crazy trying to earn our way to God. We'd all be trying to outdo each other. Romans chapter three, Paul writes about the importance of faith in bringing about salvation. And then in chapter four, he makes a contrast between faith and works. Verse one, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Our forefather, according to his flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, then that dude has something to boast about. And here's why. Because as we'll see in a few weeks, he was willing to do the work of offering up his son as a sacrifice. Well, now, there have been times in my life when I'm like, I'll gladly do that, you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> but right? The point is, this guy was willing to sacrifice what he loved most on this earth because ultimately, his desire was to obey God. So, he has something to brag about. He wins the works challenge but not before God. God's not interested in that. See, that's not, that's not how it works when it comes to being declared righteous before God. It's not about what you do. Verse three, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you see that? It's the belief. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but that's something that he's, been earned, that he's earned. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Salvation always has been and it always will be by faith. And what is faith? The heart of faith is trusting in God and taking him at his word. Now, I wanna clarify something here. There's a big difference between believing in God and believing with God. Let me say that again. Big difference between believing in God and believing with God. So again, many people uh, would, would would say, I believe in God, and essentially what they're saying is, they believe that God exists. I believe in God, right? I believe in God, I believe that there, there's a God, I believe in God. There's a difference between believing in God and believing with God. The scriptures affirm the fact that demons believe there is a God. So, as followers of Jesus Christ, our faith should at least surpass that of demons. Demons believe that there is a God. 
No question about that. The difference between believing in God and believing with God. To believe with God, and this is the great thing about the life of Abram, is that Abram is acting on the words of God and taking God up into his life, applying what God says, walking with God. That's believing with God rather than just believing in God. And as we're going to see, that makes all the difference. So real quickly then, are works unimportant? Of course not. They're important for three reasons. Number one, they do give us confidence in our faith. Number two, they conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And number three, this is the way that we're a blessing to those around us. Paul speaks to it in the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This isn't referring to a, a, you know, a few good works here and there. It's not about uh, uh, you know, um, uh, coming to church on Sunday and ticking off that box. This is about taking the life of Jesus up into your life everywhere you go, under your roof at home, into your workspace, your school, whatever sphere of influence you find yourself. All right, so next God reiterates the promise of giving Abram land, verse seven, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. How does Abram respond to this? He says, I want proof. You have to love this guy's humanity. Verse eight, but he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I don't have any, I don't have any deed. I don't have any water rights. I don't have anything. What are you going to give me? You guarantee me this. And what God ne- does next is extraordinary. Essentially what he's going to do is he's going to say, all right, I'm going to put myself up as collateral. I'm going to make you this promise again, but I'm going to ratify it. Verse 9, God said, a little shopping list for you. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Okay, so with this little shopping list, Abram knows exactly what God is doing. These are all covenant-making animals. These are all the animals that are used when two people enter, enter into agreement where each party promises to keep their end of the agreement. So Abram goes ahead with the process. Verse 10, and he brought him all these. Cut them in half. He cut these animals in half. Look at this. And he laid each half over against the other. Half of an animal here, half of an animal here. But he did not cut the birds in half because the birds are too small. So now here's what's really interesting. The Hebrew word for covenant has, watch this, at its root, at its root word, the Hebrew word for covenant, the root word there literally means cut. So covenants weren't made back in the day. Covenants were cut. Literally, they were cut. And whenever a covenant was made, blood was spilled. Now, why is this? Well, we're going to understand this better here in a second. There's more to be revealed about the future of God's people. Verse 11, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. I I love these little, like, these details. You're like, why is that even in the text? You know, why is that thing there? I think it's kind of cool. There's all kinds of really crazy, fanciful stuff that Jewish commentators uh, remark on. I, I just think it's there to show you that this is a real human experience. You know, because what happens when you, you, you've got these dead animals laying around? Well, you've got these vultures that are going to come down. And so what does Abram have to do? He's like driving them off with a stick. You know, it's like, hey, God, come on. Let's get this thing going. You know, I'm beating these birds off, right? As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there. 
and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So this is a really, this is a bad nightmare because now you're gonna have descendants. That's the great news. The bad news is they're gonna be in captivity for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So what's really interesting is that you read the very next book, Genesis, Exodus, and you know what it's about? It's about this, this word from God. Because for 400 years, we learn that the nation of Israel is in bondage to the Egyptians for 400 years, and then God leads them out. Abraham is 175 years old when he dies, a good old age. So this is some prophecy on the part of God that we know from history actually tells us did come to pass. So, pretty cool, right? Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between the pieces of these animals. God often used fire and or smoke to symbolize his presence. Uh, here it's both. On that day, the Lord, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Um, have any of you ever heard of any of those races today? They've come and gone. Anybody heard of the Israelites? They're still around. Why is that? Because God said they would be, okay? Now, here's, here's what's, what's really fascinating about this covenant. Typically, when the animals were cut in half, each member of the covenant-making uh, agreement would, in turn, walk between the halves of these animals. And it was a way of saying, if I don't keep my word, my promise in this covenant, then may I be as these animals cut in half. And each person would walk through. Only God walks through. Abram doesn't. Why is that? It's like I said before, because the covenant is unilateral. It's only dependent upon God. What does that mean? It simply means this. No thing and no person will prevent God from keeping his promise. Not even Abram. And we're gonna see Abram throw a lot of stumbling blocks in God's way, no problem. No problem. We see Abram taking all of these detours in life and God's like, nope, I can get you right back here because I made you these promises and I'm gonna keep them. So, you know what's really cool is that this entire chapter actually points forward to Jesus because just before Jesus was crucified, he's sharing a meal, a Passover meal with his disciples and you know what kind of language he uses? Covenant language. Covenant language. Jesus is going to say, this wine represents a new cut. The redness of this wine symbolizes blood, and it represents a new cut because no longer are animals gonna be cut and sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. I'm gonna be cut. I'm gonna be cut. I'm gonna be ravaged. I'm gonna be torn apart. I'm gonna be nailed to a cross. 
Yeah, you see, now it's gonna be my blood that's shed because there's a new cut that's gonna take place. So if it's important enough for Jesus to use this kind of language toward the end of his life and add to it, do this and remember me, this is why Christians do and celebrate what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And that's kind of a kind way of describing something far more extreme. The extreme nature of this new covenant. There can be no covenant without the shedding of blood. So Jesus says now, the covenant's gonna be made through me. I'm your sacrifice. God is still, God is still keeping the covenant. He's just using a different form of sacrifice. Far greater, far more effective and that sacrifices me. So as we enter into this time, I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes just to prepare your hearts as the worship team comes up. This is really a moment of reflection, dedication, confession. This is something that those of us do in following the command of Jesus. There's some introspection and some Evaluation that goes on as the Spirit of God speaks to each one of us. But you know, ultimately, all of this is an expression of God's love. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is all a demonstration of God's love. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. No greater sacrifice could be made for God to give his only son. He's communicating something to you. Receive it. So Father, as we enter into this time of reflection, we ask that you would give us enlightenment as Paul prays, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we might see all of the goodness that is found in Jesus Christ, that we could understand the height, the depth, and the breadth of God's love. Lord, remind us that we can never be good enough. Remind us that you speak directly to our fears and our doubts. Remind us that we can be honest, that when we wrestle, We wrestle with a God who is sovereign, all-knowing, merciful, compassionate. You know exactly what we need when we need it, Lord. There are many of us in the room that just need you to speak directly to our doubts even now, Father. I pray that you would. For your glory in Christ's name, amen.